Welcome to a Kessler Foundation podcast. The Foundation is a global leader in rehabilitation research that seeks to improve cognition, mobility, and long-term outcomes, including employment for people with neurological disabilities caused by diseases and injuries of the brain and spinal cord. In this episode, we are talking with Dr. Peggy Chen. She is a senior research scientist in the Center for Stroke Rehabilitation Research and the Intellectual Property Liaison at Kessler Foundation. She spoke with Rob Gerth, the Foundation's Communications Director. So where I want to start is with your origin story. You were born in Taiwan, is that true? Yes, Taipei, Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And tell me about that. So what was it like growing up in Taiwan? I'm such an American, I'm afraid, that I'm so non-international. So Taipei is the, the capital of Taiwan. And it's a big city, like any big city. And so I think that's the main reason why I, I like New York is uh-huh. because it's just reminded of home. Is it's it, it's is crowded. It? And like uh, um, in Eastern Asia, it, the population is much larger than, you know, Eastern culture. So Taipei is crowded. I grew up in an apartment building. Yeah. So it's very much like New York, I would say. So you're a city folk. Yeah. Yeah. You're not a country person. Not at all. I don't like camping. <laughs> <laughs> and so what was what's the school system like? Is it is it like is it any reflection of American school system? Or not is it totally... at all. It's the opposite. Hmm. So um I think things have changed since I moved away. Um uh, but when I grew up the uh education system it's like uh it's the education Management is like military management. Mm. So I remember every day I woke up around six and uh, I walked to school by myself. No one they bring me to school or pick me up. Like even first grade or N- yeah, and wow. uh, um, and I stay in school almost like twelve hours every day until my high school graduation. So it's wow. the, yeah, stay in school like long hours, and we have at least um, eight periods a day. The classes, um, and so here in America, for example, in high school system, you were you students go to a particular classroom right. for for example science, and but in uh, in Taiwan when I grew up, everybody stayed in the same classroom all day long for twelve hours. Oh, man, yeah. So we don't move around. We don't go to like a specific subject classroom unless it's a laboratory type of course. Like we go to like a physics lab or biology lab. Wow. And so then uh, high school, that, so is there like, is that one building for what would be the equivalent of grades 1 through 12 for us? Or did you have like, oh, we went to middle school at some point? So another thing, another huge difference is the number of students. So here you will talk about, um, when you say classmates, it's the entire grade, right? That's your classmate. No, when I grew up, when I was in high school, for example, there are 46 classrooms of students in one grade. Wow. So How most many? people, when you say, when they say classmate, that means that classroom, like about 50 students per classroom. And so, yeah, it's, it's a huge number of students compared to the America system. And then did, did was there any influence there um, that got you interested in science in your, in your pre-college um, days? Yes. So I... Um, so that's another difference between the Taiwan 
education system and the U.S. education system is we have to pick a path, a, like general direction. Do you want to go to science related or literature related? So, so for example, the science related path, the um, the um, the goal is to become a medical doctor. <laughs> okay. And um, um, the literature path, uh, the goal is to become a lawyer. Huh. Um, so yes, very different kind of paths. And so and early on, you we have to make a decision like uh, age fifteen. Fifteen. Yeah. So um, so the second so for example, high school we have three years of high school. Here is four years. So uh, and th- we have three years of middle school, three years of high school. So by the the end of first year of high school, that would be what fifteen years old. Yeah. That we have to decide whether you want to go for science or literature. So you basically, do you want to become a medical doctor or a lawyer? Now, wait, everybody can't become a medical doctor or a lawyer. So what are, what are the, well, well, is everyone I said else that a failure? Because, well, <laughs> I said that's because uh, at the end of high school, um, everyone, all the high school students will take exactly the same test. It's called um, National College Entrance Exam. So, and everyone got one score. And usually the highest score students, they will pick medical school. Mm. They will pick, uh, and, and also the medical school system is very different from here. It's, it's closer to the UK system. You go into medical school at the age of 18, mm. and you stay in school for seven years for the medical track. But for other students, are four-year college. So that's why I like people who, who pick that path, science path, you really just it depend on what that's you know what score lends you where. Mm. So it's kind of basically means if you have higher score, you have more choices. Yeah, I, I remember one of my classmates. She was in um, she was in the literature path, and uh, she had a very high score. If she wanted, she could be she could go to law school, but she didn't. She picked literature. She literally picked <laughs> literature, and everyone's like, "Oh, why did you do that?" Blah, blah, and and her parents were very disappointed. And yeah, but well, I'll tell you, my SAT mm-hmm. scores were under a thousand, which mm-hmm. everybody's like, "Oh my god!" Mm-hmm. That's, that's why I'm a communications mm-hmm. person. Uh, so let me ask you mm-hmm. then. I shared my score. What? How did you do on these tests? Like, did it tell you science, or or were you supposed to be a lawyer? Oh, um, what do you mean? Like, at, yeah. once you get the score? Well, how did your how would how did you know how did you mm. score? And then in the end, I don't remember exact score I have. I remember I got the number, and then and then you also get a um, a a card. It's not computerized at that <laughs> time. Uh, you just get a card, and with all the departments available of all the colleges in Taiwan, and you start pick. Right. You start, so you so you kind of had an idea, you know, based on your score, you made you 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 know your choices, and so yeah, <laughs> I think I think I may land in somewhere in biology related course uh, departments. That's basically here you, you call it a major, but at that time you ba- you pick your major even before you you discover what you really like uh, or what you're yeah, good at. Yeah. So it's kind of weird system. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I pick, I don't know, like probably 20 to 30 different departments 
and at the end they tell you the result. You and there's no, you cannot say no. I don't want to. I, I can I do it again? No. You, uh-huh. That's the decision. Either you go to college or not. Based on what they pick for you, even out of what you picked. Exactly. They pick. They pick. Yeah. They have the final decision. Yeah. I see. And it did being mm-hmm. a, a woman, mm-hmm. does that play into it at all in Taiwan, at least when you were growing up? Um, yeah, so in a way, like most people, like for example, my, my father at that time told me, well, you're a girl, you should pick literature path. <laughs> and I was like, but like you, I wish this was TV because the face you just made was so because, great. And I was like, but you were a boy. You also picked the literature path. Why didn't you pick the science path? Then he said that because, you know, sign is usually difficult for women, which is very weird because I have very good score in, you know, in those <laughs> classes. Um, but anyway, so, but it didn't really affect me because I, I, I was stubborn since I was very young. So <laughs> I decided I want to pick the science. <laughs> yeah. And also, also because I, I, I was fortunate enough to meet a person uh, when I was around that age, that uh, helped me make the decision. Um, um, so, for example, after I came to U.S., I realized there are actually so many different um, professionals, uh, different occupation variety. You know, when you were young, you d- you never know. For example, I never I never knew anthropology. Hmm. If I knew early on, I probably would pick anthropology. But when I when we're in high school, we don't know what that what is that and uh, what people what people do in that field. And so when I was uh, in high school age, I didn't know about neuroscience at all until I went to a talk. Uh, so this speaker was invited by our high school president and uh, um, principal um, called here. And um, Professor Ovidjan, he came to our high school and gave a talk on neuroscience. And it just blew my mind because no one in my um, family, for example, was in science or talk about neuroscience at all. And uh, actually, my family is uh, religion is like a, we call it folk religion. Basically, they believe in anything, everything. They worship <laughs> everything. And so it's, I came from very re- almost religious family. Um, so neuroscience is very foreign for me. I found it like fascinating and I wanted to do what he was doing. And, but at that time, I didn't know it was psychology, uh, especially psychology. The reputation of psychology in Taiwan is folk psychology. Hmm. You know, it's it's uh, like what you see on TV variety show. People ask you to you know, pick a color and then say what your personality is, <laughs> that, that kind of, that we call it psychology. So, so anyway, I thought you know, in order to study neuroscience, I had to go to medical school. If I go to medical school, that means I have to, to pick, to select the, the science path. So um, that's why I pick, that, that doesn't mean that that's the reason I pick medical radiology as my major when I was picking, you know, which future career I want to, I want to have. It's because uh, I picked the school. I picked National Yang, Yangming University it's because that university was a, um, a medical school to begin with. There were only seven departments in that university. Seven? For, yeah, only seven undergrad departments. And all of the departments are related to medical field. And later on, so I think just a couple years before I, I was enrolled, they changed the, the structure of the, you know, um, the school. So they changed become, uh, from medical school to a university system. Mm. But, so that's the main reason I picked that university and somehow landed me in that department. 
And um, the good news was that even though at that time all my friends and my family was like, you should just redo the exam. And that means I, I will prepare for the exam next year. So that means I will study for another year to take the exam and then go to college. I decided not to. And on the orientation, orientation day of my college, I was very surprised the person who gave the speech was the same <laughs> professor I met three years ago. And after his, you know, uh, introduction, welcome speech, I just ran to the stage and told him, <laughs> you're the guy changed my life. And uh, uh, I didn't say it like lightly, which is, and it's just for the matter of fact, you know, you were the guy. And yeah, and then we became friends because uh, he's, his actual class, he, he told the class were all uh, graduate courses. I couldn't take them. Hmm. So I basically, I just hand out in his lab and I started to learn uh, cognitive psychology is actually something I want to do. It's the neuroscience thing that I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to do when I was in, in high school. Yeah. And I got asked, did he remember speaking at your school? Did he remember? I didn't, I'm sure he didn't remember you out of all the kids he probably mm-hmm. met. And, and what was his reaction when you told him that? Um, I think he was surprised and happy. <laughs> and uh, um, I just remember, um, because I, I go by the name Peggy since I was very young, when, since I was in Taiwan. And, and I, told, I, I just remember I told him, my name is Peggy. Um, um, in Mandarin, but the name Peggy, and then he started calling me Peggy, and now I'm the famous Peggy in school. The school <laughs> is small, and um, the Peggy who hang out with the vice president, and yeah. So wait, why are you famous? Because he would just call me out. <laughs> yeah, he's like in, in on campus, he would say Peggy so and so, and then there everyone was so surprised why he knows me. Because <laughs> you're an undergraduate. Yeah, and uh, yeah. Yeah, that's great. How did you end up at Penn State then? How did you make that change and what, um, what was it like? So in my college, all my professors had um, PhD degree, either from UK or United States. Hmm. So I knew early on, like I know if I want to pursue this route, I have to go abroad. Uh, I And I decided to come to US and I want to, I, I know I want to come to the East Coast. So I just, I literally just went online and searched, I just picked about 10 universities um, and also look into their faculty introduction, uh, look at you know, each uni- uh, professor's website of their introducing their lab and uh, yeah, Penn State is one of them. Was it, like I would never do that because I would be afraid just the uh-huh. language alone would be uh-huh. too much and then to be so far from home and then to have to deal with all the different customs and everything, were you, was I it was very, deal? very naive. Just like, <laughs> you just talk to me, right? Like everything I do when I was young, it's just very naive. I just, I, ha- I, w- I was very single-minded and I wanted to do something and I just wanted to do it. And <laughs> really I, um, so I remember, so I got accepted by two schools, Penn State is one of them. And uh, um, the professor, so I applied f- to Penn State because I, I like uh, Professor Moore and Professor Morikov's uh, work. And Professor Moore emailed me in February, I remember, and asked me if, if I can talk to her on the phone. I was so nervous that was the first time I talked to American. Um, and I said, sure, why not? And after 
20 minutes and she, she said, Pekka, we welcome you to our school. I was, I, was, I just say yes, of course, I will come. <laughs> <laughs> it was a huge cultural ch- shock when I landed Penn State because I grew up in a city. It's not a difference oh, between yeah. the Western culture and Eastern culture. It's the, the landscape. I remember I, I landed in a super small airport yep. in State College, Pennsylvania, and there's cows, literally cows everywhere. <laughs> and I was like, what? I should have I should have visited the campus before I say yes. <laughs> yeah, it was very, very different. Yeah, yeah, not the city. No, not at all. Yeah. But I survived. <laughs> no, I have to ask, and again, I'm showing my ignorance. In Taiwan, mm-hmm. and when you were in school, did they? Did you? It was English a subject. Like everybody yes. had to take English, so yeah. your English was not a problem. You, you weren't so, afraid. So English was. I was probably my best subject mm-hmm. in school. Um, yeah, I. But so that's why. That's another reason a lot of people thought I would pick the literary route. But I told them, you know, language for me is a tool. I don't mm. need to. I don't want to study the literature of a language that I'm good at. Yeah. So, um, and I and and I was not very good at speaking English when I was in Taiwan. Most people are, I would say, decent in reading, mm-hmm. uh, writing not so much, but reading is okay. But speaking, because we didn't have the environment, nobody to, to practice with exactly. Yeah. yeah. Huh. And and that first conversation mm-hmm. then you had with your professor, that went smoothly then. Like- not really. <laughs> my I remember my. Professor um, Toby Morkov, one day he told me, like, Peggy, I think you're uptight. <laughs> and I think it's because I, don't, I didn't speak that much at that time because I was not very good at speaking English. So I, I, that's, what, that's the main reason I don't express myself that much. Yeah. Well, since I've been here in February, this is the most you've talked in front of me. <laughs> so <laughs> you're still a little shy, I think. I don't think it's sh- Well... Well, I don't think my friends will agree with you. I, I'm not shy oh, okay. for another I, re- Like, for example, what I just told you, like, I ran to the stage, talked to Professor Jen. No one would do that in Taiwan, ever. Really? I was always the only student raised my hands in, in class. And, uh, uh, and pe- people, people will expect me to sit on the front row in college classroom. That's just the way I am. Even though I'm tall enough, I should you know, sit on the back. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm... I was never shy. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. And I, that's, I'm glad I'm having this conversation with you because I'm getting to know you way better. <laughs> uh, so in Penn State, it was psychology? Is that? Yes. And it was and was the goal to be a teacher or at that point or a scientist at that point? Or? So at that time, I was very, I was always very goal-oriented. I wanted to become a professor in psychology. Hmm. And uh, Penn State uh, had a focus in cognitive psychology. Um and yeah, and that's the, the field I, I went in. So it took me four and a half to graduate, and I studied, um, yeah, uh, spatial attention was my main topic. By the time I graduated in 2007, um, I also applied for um, different post opposition that was opening at that time. And I think I was lucky, because uh, at that time, uh, Dr. Barrett had an opening for postdoc. Uh, and the postdoc position specifically say in the ad saying that we want someone to study uh, attention deficit, which is spatial neglect. And I said, that's great. Because I, I, I read about neglect when I was in school, but 
when I was in Penn State because it's not a clinical psychology route. I never worked with clinical population. And I just think, you know, I'll give it a try. And I came, I... Um, this is to Kessler Foundation. Exactly. Yeah. So the goal at that point then was to be a professor. You ended up here, Dr. Barrett, you mentioned, yeah. who uh, is is at Kessler. Um, and so you've been working under her for how long you've been here? So since then, 12 years now. 12 years. Mm-hmm. And... What got you, so is that, when you came here, was it about rehab for you, or was it? No, and um, I don't think so. Uh, well, so. Wait, oh, I forgot one thing about Penn State with mm-hmm. that you mentioned before we started recording, or actually you gave me a note mm-hmm. on you sent me an email about, that the professors you had at Penn State were actually married, and you didn't know it when you no. signed up. You just liked their, their work. Yeah. As separate individuals. Correct. And then you got to Penn State and mm-hmm. the cows, and you found out. Oh, you're married? Yeah, <laughs> and they so have funny. kids. <laughs> so, yeah, like I said, I was so innocent of everything. And also, um, uh, I didn't know Professor Jen, uh, that the, the, the professor that changed my life, actually graduated from Penn State. He actually got his PhD degree from Penn State. Oh, wow. So everything is somehow connected. It all, yes, yeah. that's amazing. That's um, a small world. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, so go ahead, rehab medicine. So what got you... What got is it something that they did at Penn State that t- send you that way, or is it just no? One I of those think things? it's the topic. Yeah. It's uh, because uh, spatial neglect, spatial neglect is directly yeah. uh, extend is a it's direct extension of my pre- previous work on spatial attention, um, and that's why I came here. I didn't know at the time I would stay, um, but then yeah, I I literally fell in love with this topic and I stayed. Yeah. And let's define some terms since we're here. Mm-hmm. So spatial neglect and spatial attention, just give our audience an idea of what that is. So spatial attention, so it, or I think everybody know what attention means in a way, like you focus at a moment, for example, that's attention that you know when we talk about in daily life. But spatial attention is the way you, um, you attend to things, to locations, and things at the same time. Basically, that's everything we do. Like when I'm looking at you, that's you know you you are present in this uh, in this environment in a specific location, and I can pay attention to the cup next to me. When I look at my watch, I'm paying attention to the watch, which is in a specific location on my wrist. So everything is there's a spatial uh, feature, spatial element of it. Um, and uh, spatial attention is how you pay attention to objects or people or um, literally anything, everything you interact in the world. And what would be, like, what would you study when it came to that? Or what would be the disorders? When we we control our spatial attention, when when I use the word control, it's in a very, it's actually a very implicit way. Because when you are paying attention in a spatial location, you usually don't make any effort. You don't think about it. Hmm. You just you do it already. Right. It's implicit processing system. Um, so when I studied it in school, we use um, um, EEG, for example. We we actually look at people's brain wave because spatial attention shift within the first two hundred milliseconds of um, your information processing. Um, so it's very very quick. That's why no one really notice it. Hmm. Yeah, and then so we, we're looking at um, the effect size is within 15 milliseconds. Hmm. So it's like really even like shorter than a blink of eye. Right. Yeah, so it's very, very brief. Um, so yeah, 
actually I was studying how attention shifted from space to space. Is there a, um, is, is, do we jump from one space to another or we actually you know, shift attention like how we walk from one location to another? And we found no, um, no correlation between space and attentional shift. Hmm. Yeah. And then so spatial neglect then, just to talk about that for a second. We're going to get into that a little bit more, but just, just a, a tease so we know what we're using, so n- what terms we're using. Um, people who do not have a deficit in spatial attention, we, like I said, we, we shift our attention spontaneously or voluntarily with no effort. Uh, however, for patients who have spatial neglect, they lost that ability. They cannot orient or control their attention in space. So that is why uh, even though they can see, like their eyes can receive information, visual information, but they're not paying attention to those things they, their eyes are seeing. Um, um, and because they are not perceiving things properly, they are not initiating movement toward that space. Um, so yeah, they lost the build. So basically they're not able to attend to objects in space properly. You said something, we were making a video a while back, and you said something about spatial neglect was, trying to find the quote here in my papers, um, perceive, what was the line you had? It was so good. <laughs> I uh, think I said, uh, they, they see everything, but they don't perceive everything. That yeah. was it, yes, yes. I thought that was a perfect example. So, and then somebody, what would be a, a characteristic of somebody who had spatial neglect? Um, like what would they be able to do or not do? So if if you don't ask them to do anything, when you talk to them, you may not notice it. So um, usually is when they when you ask them to do something about uh, visual information, for example. So for example, they may have difficulty to read a sentence because they will miss the beginning of a sentence uh, if they have left sided neglect. Um, um, or um, if they they will have difficulty to uh, to uh, like doing certain activities of self care. So, for example, some men may just shave the right side of their face if mm. they're neglecting the left side of the space. And I actually saw this uh, examples a couple times in different men that they. They just show up to the, the appointment without shaving the left side of their face. Uh, for women, they would put um, makeup on the right side of their face and didn't do much on the right, uh, on the left side. And if you ask those people, would they, if you said, did you shave both sides of mm-hmm. your face, would they say yes or would they say, I don't know? Or If, if you don't give them any f- like a, um, immediate feedback, like give them a mirror and point to them, they right. will never notice. They, they will just know. say, yeah, of course I shave both sides of my faces. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Now, before, I want to I get hardcore into stroke and spatial neglect, but before we do that, another one of your roles here at Kessler is uh, intellectual property liaison. Now, as a scientist, how did you, I, did you volunteer for that job? <laughs> I did. Did you? That's because you're Peggy. I'm learning so much I about know. you. <laughs> because I volunteer to do things. Um, <laughs> I'm going to remember that next time I need something done. <laughs> I'll just turn off my phone. Uh, <laughs> so I could, well, I because I'm now I'm working in, in clinical field now, and I could see how my research work 
may have impact on actual practice. However, I was just frustrated that in knowing the fact that not many uh, clinicians will use or read what we've done. Um, so even though some clinician, they would say, oh, we have so-called journal clubs every week, every month. But after that hour of journal club, they would just go back to their usual business. Journal club meaning where they read the literature. Exactly. Based on their yeah. top, their mm-hmm. their specialty. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, and so th- that's when I realized that the end of the project shouldn't be a journal article published. It should that's not the end. It's actually another beginning that you, I want to help clinicians to implement what we found or what we learned in research. And so in order to do that, I had to develop tools for them rather than ask them to read a journal article um, or the the method section of journal article. I should give Mm -hmm. them something more substantial because first the journal article is, is written in a way not very friendly to clinicians, mm. uh, and also the steps are sometimes are uh, uh, abbreviated. It's not that detailed. So I develop assessment manual, for example, um, and <clears throat> and I provided to them, and I found oh, actually they can use this manual pretty well. And you know, and all, doing this all this process, I found well, not just me, other scientists at Kessler Foundation may benefit from this this process and I want to talk to them. And I started talking to them and also I talked to the management um, executives and they were like, yeah, probably Peggy, you can can do this. So so early this year, 2019, they approved my request. Um, So it's not a promotion, by the way. It's it's additional work for me um, to be the liaison. Between the scientist and the management, yeah. and, and the whole idea of intellectual property mm-hmm. is to is to trademark it or to so uh, it's part of it. So so first of all, the um, the, the product uh, assessment tools or treatment tools. You rather than ask the clinician to read a manuscript, you want to give a label on it, right? So for example, Kessler Foundation Neglect Assessment Process (KFNAP), we trademarked it. So when we talk about KFNAP, we're talking about the entire product. We're talking about the manual and uh, um, and the scoring sheet, everything about it. So then to help clinician to to uh, have a uh, a whole concept what that product is, yeah. So it will help, and that's that's all something that I I'm encouraging scientists at Kessler Foundation if if they have any assessment or treatment tools that they want to provide to clinician, they should first like trademark it. So yeah. you can you can have you get credit for it and you can also sell it. Is that part of it? Or is you ha- you can sell it as a, a You tool? can. Uh, so um, we're non for profit and uh, I especially for assessment, I would say I I'm kind of against the idea of selling assessment tool. Uh, it's because um, one obstacle in clinical practice is if assessment costs money, then they will not use it. Mm. But assessment is the gateway. It's a, it's a, it's a first um, door you, ne- you, you need to open before you allow ideas of treatment. So 
So most assessments that we provide through Kessler Foundation are, I would say, they're all free. Mm-hmm. And uh, once once uh, a specific disorder or an illness is identified, then the treatment may cost some money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it's nice. I guess on the other end, if an assessment that it gets developed here has the Kessler name associated with it, that's good for everybody here. Yes. Yeah. Okay, great. All right. So let's talk stroke and spatial neglect then. So just a little bit of background on stroke. Um, what are we talking about as far as the number in the population? The US, let's stick to the U.S. Have are dealing with stroke. So every year there are uh, about 800,000 people have stroke in the United States. That's a huge number. And uh, um, and stroke, it's just one-time event. The population that we're talking about is not p- people who had a stroke, but people who survived stroke. So about 80% of stroke, um, there. So 80% of people who had stroke actually survived. Mm. So uh, so every year we have I don't know about or more than 600,000 stroke survivors, new new survivors. Mm adding to already millions and millions of stroke survivors in the country. So it's a huge population. Hmm. Yeah, And there, everybody's at a different level of dealing with it then, I guess, because they've been yeah. dealing with it over time. It, it, are you more likely to have a stroke based on your age or your gender or, or your habits? Uh, mostly age and uh, uh, life habits, yes. So um, the older you get, um, the more likely you'll have stroke. And also all the cardiovascular factors are stroke factors. So, for example, if you're if you're a smoker, if you uh, if you're a heavy drinker, meaning you you have one or two drinks every day, um, you're more likely to have stroke. And if you don't exercise regularly uh, or you don't eat in a, like a balanced, healthy uh, diet, more likely you'll have stroke. And what what is a stroke then? Actually, what's happening? Stroke. It's we call it a brain attack. Um, so that's another thing. A lot of people, they don't know stroke actually happened in the brain. That is why uh, people may have um, motor disability and cognitive disability and also uh, mental illness after stroke. It's because stroke happened in the brain and the brain control manage everything we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess um, you can have a stroke and not know it. Is that? It is possible uh, if it's uh, um, if it doesn't show symptoms or if... That is the main reason I think uh, there's data showing that if the stroke happened in the left side of the brain, left hemisphere, it's more likely to be detected. Uh, It's because language function mainly is um, served um, in the left side of the brain. Like if someone lost ability to speak or understand um, language, then this person uh, or people around that person will notice something's wrong. But if it happened in the right side of the brain, and if, if the damage is not, uh, the symptom of the damage is not immediately noticeable, then that person may not go to emergency room as quickly as possible. And I actually, I, ha- I, met, a, I met someone who said that um, she had a stroke in the right side of the brain, and she fell down. And then she think she thought she was fine. She went to sleep, mm. but she, but when by the, when she walked back to her bed, she fell down again. She knocked on something, and then she was on the floor. And her husband found her, and what she described that just like probably only first hour of events. Um, it sounds like she had neglect, 
Mm. Sounds like because the, because the stroke happened in the right side of the brain, and she didn't have any language problems at the beginning, and she thought like, oh, it's fine, and then she knocked on things on her left side, all her bruises on her left side of the body, and she tried to go back to her bedroom, and she couldn't find location.、Mm. She fell down again. So, so there's possibility that、um, right brain stroke is、uh, less likely to be detected, and then. And right side, left side stroke. I'm very left and right confused now. Left side stroke is more likely to be detected and、mm. noticed. Yeah.、Mm. Okay. And is the、um, do people recover fully from a stroke, or is it does it depend? I'm assuming there's different levels of stroke depending on what's happening in your brain at the time. Yeah, I would say. Well, I think it depends on what you mean by recovery.、Mm. Um, Um, if you think about if it's a physical recovery, it's easier to measure.、Mm-hmm. And some people they're they want to get back to their old self. So first of all, I I I had a, a study participant. He wanted to play guitar again. It would be difficult,、uh, but he could do everything else in life. So from you know a lot of clinical standard, this person is fully recovered. But for he himself, he. Cannot play guitar, and then that's not recovery. So yeah. And is there? We'll talk about the business side of it for a second. Is there? You're doing research on stroke and spatial neglect. Is there money available to do the kind of research that you like to do? Is it? Is it something that's popular? You know, you hear a lot about certain、mm-hmm. conditions that it's like, yeah, no one's. There's no drug that anybody wants to develop, so、mm. there's not a population isn't big enough, so there's no money in it. Is there? Is there?、Uh, A force behind stroke, as far as financially, there are、um, funding resources for stroke rehab research, definitely. But I wish there were more.、Um, there are actually so, like I said, the population of stroke survivors is huge, much larger than other brain injuries、um, combined.、Um, so, for example, we just talk about there almost eight hundred thousand strokes a year, but there are about Ninety thousand of TBI survivors a year,、mm. but there are much more research funding toward TBI research than stroke rehab research. There are TBI model system. There are no stroke model system. There are we in New Jersey we have um, the um, the commission grant for brain injury research, but there's no commission grant for stroke research.、Um, So that's what I'm saying. Like, I, I wish there are more research funding towards stroke rehab research, especially the population is getting bigger and bigger because,、uh, in general, we this is a aging society,、mm-hmm. and age is highly correlated with stroke incidence,、uh, and there will be more stroke survivors in the future. Yeah. Do you have any idea why this disparity with the money? I have no idea. Just better. <laughs> yeah. Better marketing、mm-hmm. or something. I don't know. Yeah, and、no, I think people need. To have more awareness about stroke rehab.、Um, well, another thing about stroke rehab is when you talk to a layperson, for example, they will think about physical disability immediately、mm-hmm. uh, because that's the most visible symptom. However, like I said, because stroke happens in the brain and then it can、uh, affect cognitive function, it can affect.、Um, Um, emotion processing regulation, so there are mental illness after stroke as well. So th- there should be more、uh, topic areas in stroke rehab research, and there should be more、um, support behind it. 
And then the spatial neglect piece of it is really just a piece of the, mm-hmm. what people are dealing with when they've had a stroke, right? Correct, yeah. And so tell me about why that piece is so important. You talked a little about what it was, but why is that piece so important? So uh, spatial neglect is a, a disorder of spatial attention. And we, like I said, everything we do in daily life uh, involves spatial attention. And uh, a lot, that is the main reason why spatial neglect is, is so fundamental to rehab activities, even though in rehab setting, uh, physical disabilities are focused or prioritized a lot. But, but when someone who has spatial neglect, this person will have difficulty to participate in um, therapy activities, for example. And then uh, this person's outcome in motor and cognitive um, recovery will be poor because their spatial neglect was not addressed. Yeah, and, and spatial neglect can go undetected. Is that like the person that survived the stroke doesn't know that's happening and their caregivers might not know it's happening and even the, the doctors that are working on them or even the therapists that are working with them? Yeah, so um, there are a lot of misconceptions about spatial neglect. Um, first, it can happen after right or left brain stroke. But for some reason... Uh, it is highly emphasized on right side uh, of stroke. And uh, uh, so that, that, be- that means that when someone comes into the clinic, if that person have left brain stroke, th- that person may not be screened for a spatial neglect. Then this person is not detected. Hmm. If it's not detected, then this person will never be treated for spatial neglect. Um, and also a lot of uh, neglect tests involved uh, language-based uh, instructions. So for patients who have left brain damage, that person may have also language problems and cannot participate in those kind of tests. So the diagnosis rate will be lower or undiagnosed. Um, and also, a lot of clinicians, even, even today, they still believe neglect is a parietal problem. So, so we have different um, lobes in our brain, like uh, the occipital lobe is the back of our brain. And if you go up, I'm doing this gesture, <laughs> if you go up, this parietal, and around your ear is temporal, and then the front of your head is the frontal lobe. And a lot of clinicians still think um, neglect is a parietal problem. However, spatial neglect is a disorder of spatial attention. Spatial attention network is the entire brain. So literally anywhere in the brain, if it's damaged, this person had a chance to have spatial neglect. Mm. So so I would say clinicians shouldn't rely on, on the lesion profile in the brain to make the prediction whether the patient may have neglect or not. They definitely should do a, a behavioral test with the person to screen for neglect. Um, but these are all misconceptions still, you know, existing currently in clinical practice. So I th- that I think that's the main reason why a lot of patients are not diagnosed or not even screened for neglect. And so what's the goal of the research that you're doing? Is it to let, is it to get people to know that this is something they should look for? And so I'll stop talking and you can answer the question. So <laughs> I think that another reason I am doing more applied work than basic research is I feel research is not enough. We already had a lot of research on spatial neglect. Maybe we, we still need more. We probably, you know, probably like 
60% there. But clinical practice, I think they're not even 20%. There's a huge gap between clinical practice and research. Um, so we're talking spe- specifically when you come into the rehab center, mm-hmm. the people that are doing the rehab, That's mm-hmm. they're the folks that you're yeah, trying to reach. Exactly. And uh, like I said, they, they, they're not likely to read my my journal articles so um so i want to focus you know in the next 10 to 20 years i want to focus on implementation i want to do more work to help clinicians to know about spatial neglect and actually because they know about it then they can adequately pick the the right uh, treatment for their patients because yeah. it's not going to be the same for everybody. It's it's every yeah, person's different. They exactly. might need a different treatment, yeah. might respond to a different mm-hmm. treatment. Correct. So let's talk about the treatments for a second. So as I look through some of your work, and I won't say that I read your papers from front to back. I'm just like <laughs> a therapist, I guess. Um, but the, you're using a lot of different tools. Yes. Like you're using you're using blindfolds. You're using the prism goggles, which I want to talk about. You're using exoskeleton, exercise, virtual reality. So tell me about some of the, you can start anywhere you want. A funny thing that Peggy said to me before we started was how much time do we have for this section? <laughs> because she could go on forever. So, but I do want to dig into it. I do want people to understand like what are some of the techniques mm-hmm. you're trying. And, and it seems like almost anything goes when it comes to yeah, because, because there are so many different ways to enhance attention. So there are many different ways to to help patients to regain their attention. Um, um, Tell me about the blindfolds. So how, what was that study? It was inspired by an old literature. Um, well, because when when clinicians started documenting neglect, they focused on the the visual a- element of neglect. So at the beginning, people thought neglect is a sensory problem that that uh, affecting our visual system. Mm. And how far back does that go? I'm sorry to interrupt, but like, is that like um, the 80s or the 1950s or okay. even earlier? Okay. Um, the earliest article that I can remember is published in the journal Brain, and then first author's last name is also Brain. Um, <laughs> That's not how I remember it, but probably there are even earlier um, uh, documents. So at at that time, just the documents are reporting single cases, mm-hmm. and they're all focused on visual deficits. And then, in I would say 1990s ish or early 2000, um, a lot of researchers found that oh, if they re- reduce or remove visual information or visual feedback of what patients are doing their spatial neglect symptom kind of disappeared hmm. or better. Um, and and if that's the case, then th- that person's spatial neglect is really so-called really visual. And But of course, there are other patients who actually have uh, spatial neglect symptom in other sensory modalities, right? So they may not be able to locate um, things based on their auditory information or their tactile information. So, um, but visual modality really is a dominant modality that's co- closely connected to spatial neglect. So, um, so yeah, there's, so I met a, um, several physical therapists in a different, totally different projects. After that project, a PT came to me and asked me, uh, they have a very severe patient who was not, who cannot uh, respond to any verbal command and cannot do any neglect tests at all, like what can we do? And I have very severe 
um, posture deviation toward the right side and have very severe gaze preference toward the right side. And I just say, just blindfold her and see what you see. And it was like magic. It's like a theater. The, like really right at that moment when the patient was blindfolded, the patient moved to the center, even crossed midline and go to the left. And they, they tried several times. And, uh, um, and so I said, oh, that's really working. Um, so I dig into the literature there. Yeah, there are people documenting they blindfold patients or, or doing you know, um, activities in very, very dark room with the patient. And it seems like it, it works with some patients. It doesn't work with other patients. So, it, so that really depends on what kind of neglect that patient has that affecting which uh, sensory systems. Yeah. And the, the blindfolding made it so the patient couldn't see, yeah. which meant that noise that was coming in wasn't affecting them anymore, yeah. and that's why they stood up straight, like before they were leaning, mm-hmm. and they got straight up yeah. automatically, almost. Exactly. Yeah. So um, visual information. So so when we talk about neglect, we usually focus on the so-called the negative symptom, like they are not paying attention to the neglect side, to the left side, but they also have so-called positive symptoms. Like here, uh, the visual information, it's like a magnet, like attract their attention all the way to the right. Mm-hmm. and doesn't let go. Mm-hmm. So we call it a disengagement problem. They ha- they, so in order to pay attention to a new stimuli, uh, you have to disengage your attention from the old stimulus mm-hmm. in order to go to the other, you know, to the new stimulus. So they have that difficulty to, you know, they, they are unable to disengage their attention. Nice. Okay. So let's let's talk about the prism goggles for a second. And if, okay. if I'm going about this the wrong way, just let me know. But I'm just trying to cover as many different mm-hmm. things that you've been working on. So yeah, tell me tell me about the prism goggles. So prism goggles is used in prism adaptation treatment. Uh, I'm saying that way is because prism goggles are is in, is an important element of the treatment, but it's not the only piece of the prism adaptation treatment. It's the cool part of the treatment, though. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and that is, the, that is a device that uh, facilitates this um, realignment of visual and motor system exercise. I call it visual motor exercise or visual motor training through um, a motor exercise while the patient's wearing the prism goggles. And that is important part is because a lot of clinician uh, therapists ask me, do they need a prescription from physician or ophthalmologist in order to use prism adaptation treatment? My answer is no, you don't need that because the prism goggles are not tailored, are not dis- prescribed for individual patients. Everybody, all, all the patients who have neglect will use exact same um, prism goggles to go through the treatment. And just, I'll try to visualize it for people. It is a pair of goggles that you would think mm-hmm. like a, a, a World War II flyer would wear. And with uh, the, the lenses are literally prisms. They're big, thick mm-hmm. lenses. And then it's not something you wear all the time. It's something you use for a brief time and you are run through a bunch of exercises and then you take them off and it has some sort of effect on you. So go ahead and tell me how that, how that happens. What's the effect? How does it work? So uh, like you just said, it, um, patient, they do not wear the prism goggles all the time during the day. Uh, they, on, they only wear that for 10 to 20 minutes when they're doing it with the therapist. Uh, that's very important. It's a, it's a therapist-facilitated treatment. 
and uh, uh, the the exercise they do while they're wearing prism goggles is I call it goal oriented. So it's a it's the the movement is guided um, toward a visual target. They have to point to the visual target or or um, do a initiate initi movement toward a visual target. They do it multiple times in order to adapt to the prism goggles. Because the prism, it's like, when you look through the prism, mm -hmm. it's like looking into a pool of water, right? <laughs> it kind of, everything kind of shifts. Yes, so <laughs> so imagine, so if you if you wear glasses, what, every time you, you have a new prescription, um, and when you put on a new glasses, you feel weird at the beginning, right? The first couple seconds. And then later you're fine. Yeah, the moment when you feel you're fine or you don't feel anything weird, that is adaptation. And that is prism adaptation is, literally. Um, so uh, because the prism goggle that we put on patients, so for, for patients who have left neglect, um, the prism goggle will shift the entire visual field to the right. So that's a very weird feeling if you put it on. And especially at that time, your motor system, your arms, when you're mo trying to um, pick up the clock, um, uh, your cell phone, for example, you cannot pick it up correctly because your motor system doesn't know the visual information is actually incorrect. It's different than a moment ago. And after many, many practice, many um, motor movements through the prism goggle, you find you, you, you're perfectly fine now. You can actually use the prism goggle and picking things up. Um, and that is prism adaptation. However, what after the adaptation, you remove the prism goggles. Your motor system already adapt to the prism goggle. Now it's like a lost again. And then that's the after effect. The after effect uh, will be presented as if um, the patient's moving like undershoot toward the target. They will move to the left of the object. And moving toward the left is what we're looking for. It's the after effect. It's almost the first layer of therapeutic effect. Because patients who have left neglect, they have difficulty to initiate movement toward the left. Now they're doing it. Yeah, so um, the, I think the beauty of this prism adaptation is it happened very naturally. You, you, patients are not asked to, um, to learn a new skill or to memorize any strategy. It just happened. And uh, uh, it happened uh, to all, uh, to everyone, um, to healthy people, to the patients. And uh, for therapists, it's very easy because they're not teaching them to do anything. They basically just facilitate the whole activity. So that, I think that is why prism adaptation is very easy to implement it clinically. And just so uh, I think I understand it now, finally. Um, your explanation has been the best I ever heard. Um, so if I'm wearing the goggles, it's training me to look to the left or perceive to the left yes. where I hadn't perceived before. Mm -hmm. And so when I take them off, I've learned that skill back. I've gotten that skill back. So now I can perceive to the left where I wasn't even trying before. Is Correct. that yeah. is that ballpark? Mm -hmm. oh. Yeah. I didn't really get it until now, just now. That was the best explanation <laughs> I've heard, Peggy. Thank you. Um, and just while we're while we're talking about the goggles, there is, and I'll put it. We'll put a link in the show notes to take you to some videos because it's a little bit mm -hmm. clear with the videos, and it's a lot of fun to see them, uh, the goggles. Um, but talk just for a second about the network for spatial neglect that you, that you've started, just what it is, and and uh, how people can get involved in it. Since we're particularly talking about the goggles, so it started in 
Oh my God, so long ago. 2011. That was the first. A minute ago, you were just planning the next 30 to 40 years of your life. <laughs> I don't know if you, that just, that one, I was like, that hit me like a rock. It's like, oh, Peggy is very goal oriented. She's got her next 30, 40 years plan. And now you're like, oh, it was a couple of years ago. I went to a, a joint conference of ASNR and ACRM. At that time, we proposed to build a network of spatial neglect research. Uh, clinical research. So it was a seminar to begin with. And at that time, that was the first time we introduced uh, now KFNAP. Uh, we introduced, we, we told the audience we started using Catherine Bregego scale and we like, we'd like to add instructions to it to make it clear, to make it better for clinicians to use. And after I came back from the conference, I, uh, I talked to the IT um, asking them, can they build a website for me? Mm-hmm. And and at that time, I was like, sure, why not? Um, they're very happy to do so. And I started putting information on, and I started collect. Uh, they also build me a like a sign up mechanism, mm-hmm. so people start signing up for the network. Um, yeah, that's that's how it started at the beginning. And and what does the network do? Just share information, or yes, that's the major reason is to acknowledge dissemination. Yeah. So, so people, especially for people who sign up, um, I I keep a le- list, and probably twice a year I will tell them uh, the the journal articles that we published, uh, anything related to spatial neglect, and uh, the workshop that I I've given or I'm about to give, and I you know welcome them to come to my talk, that kind of thing. Yeah. So let me ask you about virtual reality. Everybody wants to talk mm-hmm. about virtual reality these days. Mm-hmm. Um, that is playing a role in spatial neglect, I assume. Um, yes, uh, virtual rea- reality, I consider it's a tool to allow um, rehab researchers to create new treatment or certain treatment they want to, they, they could do in real life, but they, now they want to do in virtual reality world. Yeah, so it's, I, it's, it's a tool, it's a, it's a new platform to provide treatment. And the virtual reality system that we are developing here at Kessler Foundation uh, the project that I'm leading is to use the technology to create uh, new treatment. The idea, well, of course, I, I could I could create treatments that that can be easily done in reality, but that's not fun for me. <laughs> so I want to create new treatment that it's actually uh, that you're unable to do in in reality. So we can put it in the in virtual reality. Yeah. So give me give me an example of something that you're you're working on that you're going to come up with. I, I assume it, mm-hmm. some of this has to do with the fact that uh, patients uh, can you do this at home then they can practice eventually. It. Yeah. Um, currently, it's not designed that way, but mm-hmm. eventually, of course, especially now the technology is getting you know, more and more advanced and faster and faster. Uh, the for example the the uh, the VR goggle that we use in the lab it's 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 quite bulky. And uh, I don't recommend people use it at home. Um, but now there are wireless, lighter versions of it. So yeah, when the at the right time with the right technology, you can definitely use it at home. Um, um, so I, I am designing and developing six different treatment currently, and um, I don't know if I can talk about it on air because um, there are. IP protect. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Can you give us an idea of is it is it is it like something? Are you walking into a world that you're working in, yeah. or is so it? So at the beginning, the uh, 
a lot of people ask me, can stroke patients actually, you know, do this at all? Is that too disorienting for them? Right. Um, if you ever tried um, VR goggle, um, especially uh, last year and this year, the technology is so good, you will not feel the thing, especially you just sitting down, you, if you're not moving around, just mm -hmm. sitting down, watching something passively. You definitely will not have any motion sickness or they, what they call cyber sickness. Mm. And... Um, Right now, we have uh, three treatment games ready for user testing, and I have tested three patients currently, uh, stroke patients. None of them reported any adverse feelings. They were like, oh, this is so interesting, and then they start playing the game. There's no negative feelings. Uh, it's easily integrated with their hand movement. Um, they can interact with the virtual reality naturally, yeah, without any specific instructions. And I, without giving anything away, it, I assume it's a series of tasks yes. that you have to do in, mm -hmm. in space. Mm -hmm. And that it's... So one thing, one, one reason to use virtual reality or, or any like gaming-like um, techniques is because rehabilitation, no matter which uh, disorder or physical cognitive you're dealing with, uh, repetition is the key for rehabilitation. You, it's like uh, learning any skill. You need to do it multi multiple times in order for you to change a habit or learn a new skill. For rehabilitation, it's the same thing, um, especially for what we called restorative uh, treatment is you want to induce um, neuroplasticity in the brain so that this change will be more p permanent, right? So you have to do it many, many, many times. However, in the um, conventional rehabilitation setting, the therapists have to do the same thing again, 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 again. Uh, it's it's very tiring for therapists and very tiring for patients. They they may lose interest, so then they they're not engaged to the activities anymore. So using um, VR is a way to um, this word like gamification to make therapy oh, activities gotcha. yeah. like video games mm -hmm. so that to to increase the interest so that they will want to do it multiple times or even hundreds of times. Um, so yeah, that, that's a reason that I, I picked this method. Um, really, I'm designing video games even though I do <laughs> not play video games myself. Um, yeah, so, so far, at least the three patients I, I tested, uh, they have... We, very good report and very positive reports yeah and what kind of um like how do you know you're getting results then after you've done the the virtual reality so the the assessment that i'm going to use will be more conventional um and um like for example the the kessler foundation in assessment process the Catherine bregego scale will be one of my uh, outcome measures tell, tell me what that scale is you mentioned it earlier but i didn't get a chance to ask you what 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 is that so uh the majority of neglect tests or assessment out there are paper pencil um, based, meaning you ask patient to to draw a picture or to to read a word on paper or to cross the middle of the line, something like that. Um, but they're not so-called functional. They're not daily activities. Um, yeah. um, but Catherine Bagego scale uh, or Kessler Foundation neglect assessment process is a is a, a tool for clinicians to observe uh, and and quantify neglect severity directly in their daily life situations. Um, they, um, to observe whether patients have gaze preference toward the left or right side, if they can uh, dress themselves um, symmetrically, uh, left versus right, if they uh, can navigate in the environment properly without bumping to anything or 
to locate their personal belongings. So these are all functional tasks. Yeah. And I assume, again, I feel like I'm trying to get the ending of Marvel's uh, Endgame out of you, Avengers Endgame. Um, but your games that you're creating, I assume, will be the reality will be a, a real world. Actually, uh, you mean the the virtual reality yeah, world? Yeah, virtual reality. No, world. Mm. not at all. It's very <laughs> cartoonish. Really? Yeah. So that's an, another thing. Like what I'm saying, if you haven't experienced VR, just try. And there is, I I found no disconnect between the real, like vivid real world and cartoonish world. You immediately feel you are there. Um, yeah, it's not. It's very cartoonish. There's no real life, um, yeah, resemblance in my VR game. Okay, good. Well, yeah. I can't wait to see it once it's available. Well, you can actually come upstairs. I can. I could see it. Yes. Oh, Jody and I can come up and because all of you already signed NDA. Yeah. So. <laughs> I could start a secret website and <laughs> the spoiler alert website. Uh, let me ask you this. Is, do you think we're in some sort of, because of virtual reality, because of uh, mm-hmm. um, what everybody likes to talk about, IA, mm-hmm. um, do you think we're in some kind of golden age where with mm-hmm. with technology and healthcare is coming together? I think so. Yeah, this is definitely the beginning, and uh, it will become bigger and better soon. Um, one thing, really, well, and also... Rehabilitation service is getting more and more costly, mm-hmm. and so if if patient can do rehabilitation or therapeutic activities at home in a safe environment, uh, a comfortable environment, um, yeah, then that is the goal. Of, uh, I think one of the goals for um, technology based therapy. Yeah, oh, that's great. Um- What you taught me at some point that you had to look at stroke and spatial neglect through three eyes the survivor's eyes, the caregiver's eyes, and the professional's eyes, whether it's the doctor or whether it's the rehab mm-hmm. expert. Um, why, why is that? What, what, how does, how does, why does that matter? And is it the same for all conditions? Is it, is it- I was, well, I think for rehabilitation in general, all three stakeholders should be involved. Okay. I think right now, uh, maybe it's too centralized on the clinician part, mm-hmm. or uh, we put a lot of burden on them. Um, but patients and their family members can definitely contribute to patients' recovery. Uh, so that's why there's a huge push. It's going on for many years now for so-called patient-centered outcome. Um, to so rather than use an outcome measure that's so-called clinical or standardized, uh, we should consider what patient wants, and mm. then uh, the therapist can select uh, activities that will toward that that goal, like specific to that patient. Uh, however, in spatial neglect case, a lot of patients they do not know they have spatial neglect, even though even though they were told that oh you're diagnosed with spatial neglect, they don't really know what that means or or they can they can totally ignore their left side and tell people i cannot find that because i have spatial neglect but they will not correct their uh, behavior <laughs> right so so in the case of spatial neglect all three stakeholders have to work together um to 
to identify patients' uh, spatial difficulty, identify patients' self-awareness deficits, and identify what patients like to do and can do so that they can um, design or uh, in individualize a treatment regimen specific for the patient. And caregiver have to play a role as well because Rehab service is getting shorter and shorter right now, and patients may go home. As far as how long insurance companies are letting you rehab? Yes, yeah. exactly. So, so like 12 years ago when I first started, I can I see uh, the, my study part, part, my study participant may stay in K Kessler in KIR for three four months. Now it's just two three weeks. Wow, it's very short now, um, and so. Patients are likely to go home or go to subacute facility. That means uh, the family members will be the only continuity mm. <laughs> in patient's mm -hmm. life. So family members need to know what patient is, you know, what they are dealing with, what they're experiencing, so they will help the continuity of, of uh, rehab care. Do you have any advice for caregivers? Because I, I feel like they're across all conditions that they're the most mm -hmm. neglected group of... Yes. I... Um, um, that's a, that's a new line of work I'm developing and has been developing um, is to help family members to be engaged more. There's a huge literature. We identify a lot of fam, uh, family caregiver symptoms already. Uh, however, the intervention study was not that many. Uh, especially like like what you just said about technology. Actually, a lot of caregiver intervention can be provided through like a mobile app, for example, or tele-rehab, telehealth mm -hmm. uh, counseling can go through technology that we have. And it, we just need family members to be engaged more. And also clinicians have to provide family members um, training, almost education, that actually will help them. Uh, I remember... Uh, family caregiver once told me that she herself was a nurse and her daughter had a stroke. So she brought her daughter back home. She was frustrated because no one, she, well, I believe someone actually told her, but, it, but at the beginning of stroke, it's chaotic. And right, then you got a lot family on. members, they have so much to deal with. They may not remember what they learned when they're in rehab hospital with the clinicians. So clinician may need to, or, or both you know, caregivers and clinician, they need to find a more structured way to, to communicate, to teach other what, what, what they need, what they need to learn. And that's something you're working on to help caregivers. Yeah. Get so, this for training? example, in, in spatial neglect, uh, I I had a project, and and hopefully I can have a bigger, a larger scale project related to that. A lot of uh, neglect intervention or treatment actually can be done by family members. I believe. Uh, now I just need empirical evidence to back my <laughs> statement. Uh, a lot of things, like for example, uh, there's a, a intervention called neck vibration. It literally means you put massagers on the back of the, the left side of neck. That simple. That's it. Yeah. So and what does that do? So basically, it's uh, to stimulate the sensation on the left side. So you. That's very simple and easy, and very safe. That a family member can do. They can even, if they don't have, you know, a massager, they can just use their hands, just rub their neck. Mm -hmm. It just the thing is, you just have to do many, many times every day, you know, consistent. Um, so there are treatments like that, you know, that family member can participate, can do easily. And you, you spent so much time with uh, stroke 
survivors. Do you have any advice for them as far as how they can advocate for themselves? Um, they have, well, this is really based on my personal experience. It's my totally personal opinion. There's no evidence back <laughs> Okay, that's good to know. Okay. Um, I respect your personal opinion at this point. Thank you. Go ahead. Um, I, I think they should ask for clear explanation of their diagnosis and the treatment they go through and the outcome that the clinicians are measuring from them. Hmm. Um, um, a lot of, well, patients, maybe in early stage, it will be difficult for them, um, but family member can help in that regard. Um, they, they need to know what's going on. So like I said, a lot of patients, they actually don't know stroke actually happening in their brain. Mm -hmm. That is something they need to know. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing is, I, don't, that, I think that may be another difference between the Taiwan system and the U.S. system. Um, if you go to a, a doctor, if you had your brain scanned, the doctor will go through the scan with you. It will show you the lesion, where, where the lesion happened in your brain. But here, almost all the patients I work with in my study, they never, ever saw their brain scans. Hmm. I don't know why. Maybe there's a reason. I just do not know why. Um, um, but patient, they can ask for it. Uh, you need to know your condition. I think knowledge is power. Once you know what you get, then you can advocate for yourself um, how you want to get better. And also outcome measures. Um, like uh, rather, Of course, you, you yourself can feel, oh, you can move this arm better. You, you may pay attention more. But for, for yourself to to track your own progress, maybe that's important, uh, and I think it's important, at least for myself. I want to know like, can, if the clinician can provide a number, for example, an indicator, how much I, I've improved. Mm -hmm. And then I can practice myself, for example, at home, if it's simple enough, I can do it when I'm watching TV, simple movement, or I can walk more, for example. Um, those kind of things that uh, patients and family members can pay attention to. And does does race or gender or even income play a role in in how who recovers mm -hmm. and how well they recover? Um, I would say, uh, like I uh, yes, um, income level can may may play a role. It's because rehab services are getting more and more expensive um, for patients who um, who are unable to take care of themselves. Uh, in simple daily life activities, they may require personal assistance. That costs something. Um, so, um, yes, then I would say in, in, in that aspect, um, income level may play a role in, in rehab recovery. Yeah. And since we've already established mm. that you're in this for the next 30 or 40 years, <laughs> what, what do you see for the future? Like right now you're working on virtual reality, virtual reality which is you know, sort of cutting edge at this point. What do you see five years, ten years in, in your fortieth anniversary? What, what? Um, I I hope I'm still in the field of spatial neglect because I don't know anything else. It's the only <laughs> thing I know. Um, um, I think research-wise, I would like to explore more technology like mm -hmm. virtual reality, mixed reality. But in the in another side of my work, I want to expand more on clinical implementation. They, the clinical side, they may not go for technology that soon. It's just because you need more evidence to show that those technology-based treatments actually helpful, effective, and uh, cost-effective mm -hmm. before the clinical practice will you know, pick it up. Um, but just based on the current available treatments, 
available out there, clinicians still know very little. I remember I, I run, like a two, two, three years ago, I run focus groups with uh, OTs and PD at Kessler System, at Ke- uh, Kessler Institute System. I show them um, the current stroke re- rehabilitation guideline for spatial neglect. On that guideline, they listed seven different treatment options. And I asked them, have you heard any of them other than prism adaptation? None of the clinicians that in my focus group say they know the other six Hmm. treatments. That is a problem, Mm -hmm. right? So uh, while we're advancing in research, I want to also bring clinicians to closer to to the same, well, not probably not the same level, but closer uh, to, to narrow the gap. So one thing caregivers can do is, is arm themselves with that list and in a very polite way say, hey, have you guys seen this list? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, another thing, that, that's, that's why I, I think the Network for Special Neglect for the for knowledge dissemination, I, I really appreciate that we add the caregiver piece um, because before the, the website was uh, designed for researchers, for professionals to mm-hmm, read. Mm-hmm. Now we have, we have the caregiver piece. A lot of people, they... Before they go to see the doctor, they Google their symptoms, right? Yeah. Um, so with that, I, with that website, we provide information to the general public so they will know about it. They can ask the doctors. They can ask their therapist. Uh, even if the patient, they do not have neglect, but they can check it. They can screen the patient for it you know, to confirm, oh, my so-and-so, they don't have neglect. That's good. Yeah. But if they actually found um, neglect, they, they need to find a proper treatment for the patients. Yeah. yeah. And here, my, my last question. Um, what, what do you like best about your job or what's best about working here at Kessler? Or maybe that's two questions. My last two questions are. Because um, I set my goal very early when I was 15. 15, I was going right. to say, yeah. So I wanted to become a professor and then because we're, we're uh, affiliated with Rutgers. So I... I basically realized my, like, reached my goal by the age of 27, 28. It's like, oh. So, yeah, I have, like, two years, like, quite depressed. Like, I don't know what to do with my life. (laughs) (laughs) But now it's, it's, uh, I like the fact, I, I like, I like to think, um, I have contribution to clinical practice, even though I'm a researcher. Yeah. Well, you're a teacher as far as I'm concerned. You've taken me under your wing mm-hmm. since I've been here and taught me what I know about spatial neglect and and, uh, and listening to you speak about what you want to do. Basically, mm-hmm. you want to be a teacher is what you're saying. Well, you that's wanna... another thing. So so answer you to another question on why I like to work at Kessler is because of this kind of opportunity. So so I look at my, um, my lab mates when I was in Penn State. Almost all of them that go on the traditional academia route. They become professors in universities and colleges, right? And they don't have this chance to talk to the general public. There, there, there actually is a, there's a gap <laughs> between the academia people and general public. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think Kessler Foundation um, trained me how to talk to clinicians, how to talk to the general public who do not know about neglect, who do not know about medical research, help me um, talk to my mother, for example, because my mom always asks me, what do you do exactly? Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, I, th- I think that is very, very important. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Peggy. I really appreciate your time today. Okay, thank you. For more information about Kessler Foundation, go to KesslerFoundation.org. That's K-E-S-S-L-E-R 
F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N dot O-R-G. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts.